Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-pants labyrinth and pro-John Let's Go podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. You may notice that I sound different. Yeah, for worse for you this week. Yes, much mm-hmm. for worse for me this week. I have contracted what I would like to refer to as the spicy flu from now on. John had also contracted it earlier. I, meanwhile, am sitting happy and healthy in a, a whole other part of the city. Yes. And you can't see it, but I'm dabbing right now. Yes, I just tested this morning and I have it. But we stop for nothing. Yes, neither rain nor sleep nor COVID. Exactly. Anyway, we have watched the movie Sunshine, which is a sci-fi psychological thriller directed by Danny Boyle. Before we get into that, however, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Well, being so happy and healthy, I managed to get to the cinemas this week and I saw three movies. I saw The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is an action comedy movie directed by Tom Gormican, and it follows Nicolas Cage playing himself. And he's sort of down on his luck, he's looking for money, and he's invited to attend the birthday party of a a rich man named Harvey, played by Pedro Pascal. And he agrees because he's desperate, but he is soon contacted by the CIA who think that Harvey is an arms dealer and they recruit Nicolas Cage to do a little undercover work for them. This is just really fun. It's kind of simultaneously a love letter to and a roast of Nicolas Cage. And Cage himself is really, really good in this. It takes a certain lack of ego to put it all out there like he's doing here. It It is really a performance that's not afraid to poke fun at itself, to poke fun at his own public image and his own well-known idiosyncrasies. That's one of the great strengths of it. And he plays it straight. He doesn't wink. He does it like it's a totally serious role, like he's playing any other character in a serious drama, and that's what makes it work, because he's absolutely 100% committed to it. And it's a great script that he's got to work with as well. It's funny. It's really funny. It's got a lot of great dialogue between the characters. It's it's sort of these escalating action hijinks that are very enjoyable to watch. It has a lot of personality, and the action itself is really well done. It sort of intentionally escalates that the movie starts off as this very sort of personality-driven, character-driven comedy and then gets more and more deranged as it goes on to the point where it's actually like really like huge in scope and stakes by the end. And the, the joke is, of course, that it's Nicolas Cage, the actor who's involved in a story out of one of his own movies. Underneath it all is this more serious story about his family and him relating to his family and him relating to, I don't know, waning stardom. The fact that he isn't the the big movie star that he was in the 90s, that he's in a lot more low-budget fare, a lot less reputable films. I'm not sure how seriously to take it all. All I know is that Cage is taking it very seriously and he's like giving a performance that is like properly emotional and serious and complex and weirdly playing himself he ends up giving one of the most you know layered and interesting performances he's given in a long long time. Well it's an interesting character to him. (laughs) Yeah you have these like cutaway imagined spots where he's visited by these daydreams basically 
of this version of himself called Nicky, who is also played by Nicolas Cage, who is basically like a Nicolas Cage character from one of the recent movies and is like really crazy and really out there. And really like, it's like the devil on the shoulder in one of those old cartoons, basically. I mean, it's little touches like that that are really fun, though. There's a whole sequence where Nikki leans down, like starts making out with Nicolas Cage. And it's like two Nicolas Cages making out with each other. Then Nikki stands up and says, yeah, tell him, tell him Nick Cage smooches good. Tell him Nick Cage smooches good. Then looks directly into the camera and says, tell everyone Nick Cage smooches good. <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> It's got that kind of like really weird humor that is is constantly poking at its at its chief subject, and that is is something. I mean, not since John Malkovich and being John Malkovich have we seen an actor sort of dissect their own public persona and really make fun of themselves in in this comprehensive a way. I thought that was very enjoyable. How's Pedro Pascal? He's really good. He's good. He's got a lot of chemistry with Nicolas Cage. He is very funny. So all all in all, it's it's quite a strong movie, like surprisingly so. I mean, it's got like an 88, 87% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Huh. When I first heard about this project, I thought it was going to be a gimmick. You know, it's one of those gimmicky sort of films that you see every once in a while, but I'm glad to hear that it's turned out quite well. Oh, yeah. You see it and it's like, oh, that actually makes so much sense. Mm. Like it actually kind of has no business making as much sense as it does. It's a really smart metatextual film that could only really be done with someone like Nicolas Cage. I don't think that there is virtually any other actor that this could work for. You you mm. can't really slot him out and slot anyone else in. Well, he's inherently unique. Yeah. I next saw The Northman. It is a historical epic directed by Robert Eggers, and it follows a Nordic prince named Amleth. He's played by Alexander Skarsgård. And as a child, his father Orvandil, played by Ethan Hawke, was killed by his traitorous uncle Fjolnir, played by Clay Bang, who you guys would know as Dracula from that BBC miniseries a couple of years back. And Fjolnir abducts his mother, Gudrun, played by Nicole Kidman. Only Amleth escapes. But now, as an adult, he's back for revenge. This is really heavy and austere. It lumbers a lot. There are significant pacing problems. It is very, very slow to start off with. I'm getting real Blade Runner Act 3 vibes from the first half of this movie. It's approaching dull at a lot of points in that first half. Very little is actually happening. I think you could cut it all down, all of that stuff down to something like 20, 25 minutes, and the movie would have been better for it. And there's a whole lot of mumbling and growling. I mean, these characters aren't speaking in a way that is easily audible to the audience and so it can be especially with all of these names that are unfamiliar to modern audiences it can be hard to keep track of everything in in those early goings but it really picks up once he actually finds Fjolnir he infiltrates Fjolnir's sort of Iceland estate or Iceland like field that he's he's built this small community on as a slave that Fjolnir is buying all these slaves to work the fields and he infiltrates the place as one of them and sort of starts to make googly eyes at one of his fellow slaves played by Anya Taylor-Joy and there's that subplot the whole second half of the movie basically turns into a a hitman level circa 900 
AD. That's the whole thing is him like sneaking around the environment and like setting up these increasingly elaborate and weird setups to basically make Fjolnir's life hell before he kills him. Hamlet. Yeah, take out a bunch of his his people, freak him out. There's a lot of tense stuff towards the end. But I mean the real problem is is that you've got a lot of homework to get there. You've got a lot of vegetables to chew before you get to that nice deliciousness at the end and it's lost a lot of energy by the time it gets there but the imagery is fantastic throughout there are just gorgeous landscapes there are some very cool images that are are more fantastical in nature i mean don't get me wrong this is a movie that's set in reality it's not a fantasy movie but there are you know sort of these these sort of more trippy sequences dream sequences sequences when people are concussed where (laughs) you see a few more more outrageous things, and, and that's really good. I mean, the final fight of the movie takes place in an erupting volcano. Cool. There's just some really cool images that come out of that, and it's shot brilliantly as well. Eggers uses a lot of long shots where he will just, like, move through an environment and people will flit in and out and the action will go on all around you, and it really places you in the scene and it really adds to this... The aesthetic success of the movie, which is the creation of this 900-era old Nordic town environment, you know, aesthetically, it's it's kind of a masterpiece in the way that they've recreated this setting. It's just, I don't know. I think I'm going to need to think on it a while longer, whether it's something I really want to rewatch, because that first half really is tough to recover from, even though the second half is, is actually quite strong. I next saw... Everything, everywhere, all at once. And who the fuck knows what this movie is? Hmm. It is, I suppose, in the simplest terms, a comedy science fiction movie. But it is so much more than that. It's directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. And it follows a woman named Evelyn. She's played by Michelle Yeoh. Her husband, Waymond, who is played by Ki Hu Kwan. They're sort of on the rocks. Ki-Hu Kwan, by the way, short round from Indiana Jones and the Temple hey. of Doom. He's back. He, like, took a long time off of acting, but he's back. Hmm. They have a daughter that Evelyn is sort of on rocky terms with named Joy. She's played by Stephanie Su, And they're dealing with Evelyn's disapproving father, Gong Gong, played by James Hong as well. And they all own a dry cleaners business that is being audited by an imperious bureaucrat called Deirdre, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And they're going to the IRS office to talk to Deirdre one day when this whole very real world story is interrupted by a whole bunch of multiverse stuff. Look... This is one of the most creative and surreal movies I've ever seen. It is truly an extraordinary experience. It is something that delights in just seeing how far it can stretch things and how far it can push you as the audience and how far you're willing to go. Three different people left the movie and didn't come back because it was just Mm -hmm. that weird. Even for A24, giving this script... $25 million to make this is brave because it really does all come down to the execution of the directors because even, like, it's a fantastic script. It's brilliantly written. It's got a lot of really great ideas and themes in it. But on the page, I can't even imagine what this looks like because there's so much flitting between, you know, realities and ideas and intercutting different places and and different versions of the same people. I mean, this is not the Spider-Man multiverse. It is like if you 
you're constantly just flitting through like there i suppose technically speaking there are hundreds of multiverses within this movie and it's like mr nobody on bath salts i can't even imagine how you would communicate a lot of these ideas on the page and it really does come down to the execution which is extraordinary it doesn't even try to slow down it doesn't even try to explain it to you you've got to be with it you've got to be on board with and, and just sort of let it wash over you and take it and take you on the ride. And if you're not, then you're like those three people. You're walking out of that movie and you're not coming back. The less said about the specifics of the narrative, the better. It is quite crazed and it goes places. It's one of the great joys of this movie is that every time you think it can't go further, it does. Underneath it all, it slowly reveals this real meaning and heart to it. And it, it says something. It means something. Something that is simultaneously sort of timeless but it also feels very much born out of the current moment. There are just outstanding performances, especially by Yo and Sue. It's visually stunning. It looks so much more expensive than it actually is. And there's an excellent Sun Luck score. It it really is an incredibly impressive movie. It feels destined to be a cult classic. It is so gutsy just in terms of what it's attempting and the fact that they actually pull it off is incredible like i mean we talked a couple of weeks ago in perfume about that the whole thing of when you're you're watching a piece of art and it does something you didn't know it could do and that's basically what this movie is for its entire runtime and it it feels like it's going to be a cult classic it's going to be a really brilliantly received movie for many years to come that will be not only because of its quality but because it also does feel like i mean it's got nothing to do with covid or anything like that but it does feel very much like a snapshot of this point in time, emotionally speaking, of how we feel as a society at this moment. And it, it's been incredibly well received. It's one of the, the best reviewed movies of 2022. It's got a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it's, it's been acclaimed. And, and really, I mean, I'm so glad that A24 is around to fund movies like this. Cause, cause like I said, it's, it's, such a brave choice for a movie to make and I'm not sure that any other studio would have would have done it and in fact I'm I'm still kind of amazed that A24 had has done it because even for them this is so weird but at home I watched Hot Fuzz it is an action comedy directed by Edgar Wright and it follows a by the book London cop named Nicholas Angel who's played by Simon Pegg and he is too good at his job he is making the other policemen look bad. And so they arrange to transfer him to a small town where he is partnered with an idiot named Danny Butterman, played by Nick Frost. But once he gets there, some bizarre accidents start to happen that result in people's deaths. And he starts to suspect that there's actually something a little more malicious to it all. This is my favourite of the three Cornettos trilogy. I say that having not yet rewatched The World's End in, in a while. I'll be getting to that probably maybe next year or the year after. But for the moment, at least, the, I mean, it was always my favourite when I saw the, the trilogy the first time. And at the moment, at least, it remains my favourite. It's in some ways the most specific and Baroque of all of them because mm. it's sort of like this great blend of Miss Marple and Sylvester Stallone. Mm. Yeah. Very specific to that kind of like bonkers 80s action movie, but as well as that sort of cosy tea time British murder mystery thing. And it is simultaneously about both of those those genres. It is a wholly considered film. Not only is the story really fun and the, you know, the filmmaking really clever, it's all tied together with this whole using action 
and very quick editing and all of the trademarks of your Michael Bay bad boy style mm. in the most boring place on planet Earth, which is this small town where everyone knows everyone. See, I kind of love that small town. I kind of looked at that small town and was like, yeah, I kind of would, wouldn't mind living there. Mm. But that's Edgar Wright's hometown. He went back that's there nice. to, to film it. And, and you can tell because he shoots the place gorgeously. Yeah. Peg is really good here. Nick Frost is the standout, though. He's very, very funny. And he's playing a character that I'm actually able to like this time rather than Shaun of the Dead, where I was I was constantly hoping the zombies would get him. Yeah, in this one, Nick Frost is playing, yes, someone who's an idiot, but he's very earnest. Hmm. And that's what's so interesting about him and how he relates to Detective Angel. Definitely. And the mystery itself is good. It's a good mystery. It's even got a a few little bits and pieces of horror vibes there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, like, cool red herrings throughout the the story. These dotty townspeople. That's the joke, is that Nicholas Angel is basically this very real-world cop, and everyone around him is insane. But you get a great supporting cast as well. Jim Broadbent, Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton is great here. And Olivia Coleman turning mm. up just to remind us all that she's been doing British film and television for like 20, 25 years before internationally she started getting noticed. I feel like as Australians, we consume a lot more British culture than the US yeah. does. So it's less of a surprise for us. Oh, yeah. Like, when Olivia Coleman gets, you know, cast as Queen Elizabeth, it's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Because yeah. as Australians, we've seen Olivia Coleman do a yeah. bunch of stuff. We get a lot of BBC, ITV stuff yeah. imported over here. And so I was already very familiar with her from things like Broadchurch. And she did an episode of Doctor Who. She was, like, in Matt Smith's first episode of Doctor she Who. She was in Peep Show. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's just a nice little reminder that she's been doing good work for a long, long time now. It's one of and my. She's very funny. I really like Olivia Coleman. It's one of my favourite success stories of the, yeah. like, the last five years of films that that she just comes out of nowhere internationally, and now she's got an Oscar and two m- more nominations on top of that. The buddy cop thing is really interestingly handled because they sort of simultaneously make it sort of a romantic comedy parody as well. Mm-hmm. That 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 this buddy cop relationship is handled the way that a romantic relationship would be, and they get a lot of fun out of that. But it gets progressively more absurd as it goes on. Intentionally so, it sort of transforms into this dumb action movie by the end, and and that is it's glorious, really glorious. Yes, to see it make that transition. It's a very funny script. I would say it's more clever than Laugh Out Loud, but it is always amusing. Right, as you said, John, gets to experiment with his filming style. He gets to expand out into some more, you know, action-oriented kind of directing. I mean, he did Spaced and some other TV stuff, but Shaun of the Dead was his first movie, and now here you can see him expanding more. And that's one of the most interesting things is to see Edgar Wright's sort of progression as a director and the way that he will he will continue to challenge himself even, you know, right up through last year's uh, Last Night yeah. in Soho. I mean, that's still there. That's something new that he's doing. So, And it's all thing of Shaun of the Dead, the way that that is edited and filmed is brilliant. Mm. But Hot Fuzz has thematic purpose behind its editing and its filmmaking, which is really cool. It's a whole film. In that sense. Mm. The movie is available for streaming on Binge, Foxtel Now, and Stan. I do really like World's End, though. I next saw Vacancy. It is a horror thriller directed by Nimrod Antal, 
And it follows this couple on the rocks, Amy, played by Kate Beckinsale, and her husband, David, played by Luke Wilson. And they get lost traveling home from a, from a family visit. And they find themselves really in the sticks and they pull over at an isolated motel to stay the night. But when they get in there, they find these old VHS tapes in one of the cupboards in their room. And when they put them in the player, they see that they are actually snuff films filmed in the room they're staying in. So they've got to get out of there alive. This is just like a really tight exercise in suspense. It's just on the line of horror. It is a horror film, but it's just a horror film. It 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 could so easily be classified a thriller or a suspense film. It's very Hitchcockian in its ambitions. It's got a tiny cast, and so it has a very small body count. And it really is all an exercise in suspense, in tension, in maintaining that tone of, you know, sort of dread and adrenaline through filmmaking and through, you know, smart pacing. There's not a lot of gore or extreme violence. Like I said, there's a very small cast, so there's very few opportunities for for death. It really is about these people trying to survive. And it's very short. It's barely over 80 minutes without the credits. And so it doesn't overstay its welcome. Where another movie would start to flag at trying to maintain that level of tension, this movie's already rolling credits. Like, it's it's very smart about the way that it structures itself, the way that it teases out all of its different, you know, thriller elements. And the character work is good too. I mean, these are flawed people, but they have a believable relationship with each other. And crucially, for a movie like, I keep coming back to it, has a very low character count and so a very low body count, you root for them. You want them to live. You know, we don't need the story to be peppered with a bunch of gruesome deaths to get the adrenaline up. We're already adrenalized enough because we really want these two people to survive. And that's one of the great successes of this, as is the casting. Beckinsale and Wilson are both really good here. And you get Frank Whaley as the manager of the hotel, who's really sort of organizing this whole shebang. And he is is really good in this sort of scene-stealing villain role. But I next saw Vacancy 2, the first cut. Can I guess on the quality of this movie? Sure. Is it bad? I wouldn't say bad. It is a direct-to-video film directed by Eric Bross. It's it's allegedly a prequel, but I challenge that. But it, it follows these motel managers who basically catch a serial killer who's using their, their motel as a killing ground and... The serial killer convinces them to start making snuff movies and killing off their customers to sell the snuff movies. And they're just way too easily convinced to do this. I mean, it's, it's almost comedic how quickly they come around to this idea. But they start out by attacking a trio of young people. So this movie came out the calendar year after Vacancy did. It's barely related. It's a different motel. The only actor who returns is one of the, the killers from the first movie, a guy named Scott Anderson, who had a mask over his face the entire time in that first movie and had no lines. <laughs> He's the only one they could get back. And uh, if his performance here is anything to judge by, then keeping a mask over his face and not giving him any lines was the correct call in that first movie. It strikes you as virtually a different property. And it's much more of a rote slasher. 
They really run through a lot of the standard beats of the genre. It's still a small cast, but they work in a whole bunch more deaths. You know, they'll bring in, you know, a random character who, you know, enters the film for five minutes only to get killed off. I mean, they're really not even trying for that same level of sort of Hitchcockian suspense. And the targets are just a whole lot less interesting. I mean, these three main characters, we don't root for them the same way that we root for Kate Beckinsale and Luke Wilson in the first movie. Their characters aren't as well-developed. Their characters aren't as interesting to, to watch. But the movie this time is equally the killer's movie. We keep cutting away to see what they're doing, which we did not in the first movie. So the main villain, I suppose, well, one of the main villains is a guy named David Mosco, the actor. And he's pretty good. He's the best the best performance in the thing. He kind of, you know, steals the movie every time he comes on. But uh, what other good things can I say here? They've created a good location. I mean, they, they built this motel in a parking lot and they've given it a more sort of woodland vibe than the first movie had. The, the first movie just sort of seemed like the sort of generic L-shaped motel with the, the manager's yeah. office. This one has sort of a more like bungalow type feel surrounded by woods and so it gives it it really makes it feel sort of almost Friday the 13th in settings in some ways but the ending really strains to connect the ending of this movie to setting up what we saw in the first movie to the point where you really start to wonder whether those scripts started out as something else and they tacked the name on to uh, help sell it. It's just not really a franchisable concept, it turns out. Yeah. It's just probably why yeah. they did not make more. I saw Perfect Stranger. It is a thriller directed by James Foley, and it follows a feisty journalist named Rowena Price. She's played by Harley Berry. And her childhood friend Grace, played by Nikki Acox, is murdered. Rowena suspects that Grace was killed by her advertising executive boyfriend, Harrison Hill, played by Bruce Willis, who, I mean, she was having an affair with him. You know, he was cheating on his wife with her. And so she goes undercover at Hill's advertising agency to investigate. This is extremely generic. It is the kind of movie that is in real tough times now because it is the kind of movie that was sort of built to be watched at 11.30 at night as you're flicking through TV channels and see something and says, this looks fine. You know? Yeah. That's really what it is. The script is a total mess. The narrative is erratic. The dialogue is awful, but it's the characters that are the real problem here. They're so bizarrely developed and and erratic. Rowena is very badly written. Harley Berry can't save it. But she is at her best when she's on screen with Giovanni Ribisi. They have a, an interesting little dynamic there, even if the script has... Uh, like, again, it's a, a really strange character development angle here that make these people seem unpredictable and flighty and inconsistent throughout. And Willis just seems bored. I mean, who can blame him? But he just he really seems bored. And look, it sets up a lot of suspects. There are a lot of potential culprits here. That's actually one of the movie's strengths is that it does a good job with all of these red herrings that you you really could see the killer ultimately being a whole bunch of different people. But then it it decides to just bypass that all for an absolutely ridiculous ending that makes no sense given everything that we've seen before. It's just playing a lot of stupid games. It runs off the rails entirely and it just ends up being kind of irritating. And, you know, for a movie that you're watching at 11.30 at night because there's nothing better on, that's okay. But for a movie that, you know has your full attention, it can't 
withstand that level of scrutiny. I next saw Wind Chill. It is a supernatural horror film directed by Gregory Jacobs. It follows two college students who actually don't ever get named, but they're played by Emily Blunt and Ashton Holmes, and they are travelling home for Christmas, and there is a, a snowdrift that they get into an accident on a, on a back road, and they get trapped in this snowdrift. But wouldn't you know, this is actually the worst place to be trapped in a snowdrift, because this stretch of road is haunted by ghosts. Oh, nice. This is actually a really clever movie. It's quite well paced. It would be better without the ghosts. The human part of it is what lands. It's these, I mean, these two, these two characters don't know each other. It's, it's one of those whole, you know, community notice boards. Anyone need a lift back in this direction? Cause this is where I'm driving home for, for Christmas. So they're really, they're really not familiar with each other, but it becomes very clear that Ashton Holmes has a, has a crush on Emily Blunt. And that's the part of it that's really interesting is that sort of human dynamic, the friction between them, the fact that they're stuck here and like in really dire straits, even without the ghosts, because, you know, it's getting very, very cold overnight, you know, in these, in this mountain back road. The best part of it is the conversations between these two characters, the back and forth. And you could really do most of this as a play as two characters just sitting there in a, in a car talking to each other. But the initial stereotypes that were presented with these characters, the idea that, you know, Emily Blunt comes off as very cold and aloof and Ashton Holmes comes off as as creepy, bordering on being an incel. But those those initial judgments, those initial stereotypes are sort of unpacked and become more detailed as the movie goes on and we find out more about these characters and they become a whole lot more interesting. And Blunt and Holmes are both fantastic. It, it really is the ghost stuff that lets the whole thing down. I mean, that, that, that's the ironic part of it is that was probably the pitch, you know. That's probably what gets this movie made is, you know, two strangers break down on a road and are haunted by ghosts. I mean, that's probably gets this what gets this thing sold, but it is the least interesting part of it. There are just only so many sort of spooky ideas you can deploy when the movie is two people stuck on the side of the road in a car, you know. There's only so many times you can see a ghost pop out of nowhere and, like, bang on the window before you start to lose interest in that. It's not bad, per se, but it's it's a distraction. And the the finale is problematic as well because it, it feels an instinct or a duty to to try and come up with some sort of big, spooky ghost story finale when really it doesn't need it. Although they do end it well. They, they manage to tie the, the very final beats of the movie together in a way that is much more satisfying and much more in keeping with the strengths of the movie than the weaknesses. Lastly, this week, I watched a movie called Straight Heads. It is also known in some regions as Closure, but it is a rape-revenge thriller directed by Dan Reed. And it follows a businesswoman named Alice, played by Gillian Anderson. Her and her young boyfriend, Adam, played by Danny Dyer, are attacked one night on a lonely country road, and she is raped. He is beaten. And then later on, after the event, she spots one of the men that attacked them, and she sort of convinces Adam into coming with her into sort of getting revenge on these guys. So this is not a movie that was on the list. Neither was Perfect Stranger, actually. They were both pack-ins with Wind Chill, which was the only movie of the three that I actually really wanted to watch. And I I find the whole genre of rape-revenge films to be quite troubling. It's not something I'm particularly on board with. It is not to say that they can't be good and they, that they can't say something worthwhile. I mean, Promising Young Woman came out a couple of years ago and, and is basically a rape-revenge film, just a rape-revenge film that has a lot to say about 
you know, rape culture and, you know, the treatment of women and stuff like that. It's, you know, there are there are ways you can handle a story like this that are, you know, respectful of the trauma of an event and actually have a lot to say about the way society handles stuff like that. This is not that kind of movie, though. Look, the filmmakers probably think that they're saying something, but really, underneath it all, it is the same old exploitation. Gillian Anderson's really the only thing that's giving it any sort of depth. You know, the movie is always at its best when it just turns things over to her, when it lets her give it dignity and depth through her performance rather than anything in the script. But it's got very muddied gender politics and sexual politics, and it really starts to become way too much about Adam, about his response to the rape of of Gillian Anderson. I mean, it has all this imagery to begin with of, you know, sort of stags, you know, that just before the the rape happens, a stag is hit by a car and stunned. So, you know, stags and their horns have been used as a symbol of cuckoldry since before the time of Shakespeare. So there's a very sort of unfortunate implication with all that stuff. There's an unfortunate implication to follow that now that his girlfriend has been raped, Adam is, is unable to maintain an erection. And a lot of his story starts to become implicitly about regaining sexual ownership of women. And that becomes a real issue because the movie starts to focus way too much on him. And Dyer is just not good as Adam. He blubbers a lot. He's very ineffectual. There's no depth to the character or to the performance. And it's it's not a well-written movie. It has some very on-the-nose dialogue. For instance, in one scene, Gillian Anderson shows Danny Dyer a, a rifle that she owns, and she says... It was my father's. He was a soldier. He wasn't the type to turn the other cheek. I mean, it's that kind of wooden dialogue, but then you'll notice also very rooted in maleness, very rooted in the woman taking inspiration from the men of of, of her actions being overshadowed by a focus on the men in her life. Again, the filmmakers probably think that they're saying something about men, about the way that men treat women, about the way that men respond in the aftermath of sexual assaults on women that they know but it's too clumsy about the way that they're saying it and actually it it starts to just end up in a lot of the pitfalls that it is commenting on and it comes worryingly close to creating a parallel between Gillian Anderson and the men who raped her. It invests in the idea that in the aftermath of that the survivor needs to fix themselves or needs to to reclaim something from their attackers and comes into this this sort of very, I mean, very unfortunate narrative that suggests a whole lot of unfortunate gender and sexual subtext that I, I really found quite icky. It's got a very nasty ending as well that, that makes everything revolve around Adam once more. It's, I'm, and it really should surprise no one that this is a movie that was directed and written by men. So yeah, I can't, I can't, recommend it at all i think that it's it's already a uh, a always a dodgy suggestion when you're when you're making a movie in this genre with this sort of setup but the way that they pull it off the sexual politics of it all i mean it just does undoes it entirely so uh yeah i can't i can't re- recommend it that's me done for the week what about you guys what have you been watching so another step into our journey into the Amityville series. Yes, we are watching every Amityville film that we can find. 
No, it's not Amityville Vibrator. Yeah. Sorry. I will not rest. I'm, at, at a certain point, I think you need to bite the bullet and track down a used copy of it on disc if this goes on yes. too long. But we watched a really good one. This is Amityville. It's about time. <laughs> the legitimate Amityville 4th or Amityville 1992. It's about time. The title of it is sort of a fluid thing. And it changes depending on where you are. When architect Jake Sterling returns home to California from a business meeting in New York, he brings back a surprise, an antique mantle clock he found on the ruins of a demolished house in Amityville. However, as the vintage item hooks its claws into the fireplace mantle, bizarre supernatural incidents begin to occur, and unfathomable dark powers start to take control, not only of the Sterling's house, but also the family's lives. Now an ancient evil has returned, and it is nasty. Can Jake's ex, Andrea, defeat the evil and rewind the clock? This is great. I don't know if it's because the rest of these Amityville movies objectively suck, but I loved this. It's like Hellraiser had a kid with the Amityville horror and was raised by Poltergeist. This makes sense because it was directed by Tony Randell the director of Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. As someone who has seen all of the Hellraisers, for better and for far, far worse, the Hellraiser 2, Hellbound is one of the better ones. The acting and set design are fascinating. There were portions where director Tony Rendell and production designer Kim Hicks, who earn her money, designed the interior of the main house to be as intentionally unpleasant, off-putting and nightmarish as possible. A caricature of a suburban home, and it is used perfectly. The acting and set design are fascinating, and the film goes in wild places. Bizarre behavior from the characters and timey-wimey bullshit abound in this fantastic maniac hallucination of a film. A guy gets turned into goo and sucked down a drain. Yeah, we see someone melt, which is not common in... You know, your standard haunted house fair. That's more of its own trauma genre of its own. This movie actually gets cosmic horror. And this is where some of the poltergeist influence comes in. The walls don't stop at the walls. There is something beyond the walls. There's, like, fuckety things happening with time and space. And it's thematically a movie about people stuck in loops and frozen in place in their lives and how to break out of these loops. There is some really fascinating things that happen to characters here. Jake, the father in this family, gets mauled by a dog at the beginning of the movie, and he slowly starts to be corrupted by the spirit that's attached to this clock, and slowly begins to show more behaviors similar to Ronnie DeFeo. What has that got to do with being attacked by a dog? They use the wound to literalize his change. Okay. The wound keeps festering. Alright. And the practical effect is really, really good. And it's implied that the dog has been pushed towards this by the house. By the... Entity. I would hesitate to call it a spirit. By the end, it is truly something more cosmic and unknowable in nature. It is messing with time and messing with space in very interesting ways and i really enjoyed this this has such an interesting style and goes into such interesting places every time 
a new weird thing happened, I was like, okay, what's it going to do next? And then it does something which is like, that's wild. Oh, you can find this on Tubi. Of course you can. Yeah, (laughs) it's the best movie I've ever seen on Tubi. This Mm. was actually really fun. How many of the Amityville movies are on Tubi? A lot. Quite a few. It feels like the natural home of the Amityville franchise should be on Tubi. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. We also watched Zombieland Double Tap from 2019. Ten years after the first film, Columbus played by Jesse Eisenberg, Tallahassee played by Woody Harrelson, Wichita played by Emma Stone, and Little Rock played by Abigail Breslin, moved to the American heartland as they face off against evolved zombies, fellow survivors, and the growing pains of their maturing makeshift family. I quite like this one. I'm a fan of zombie movies, and I'm a big fan of the first Zombieland. And I got a real kick out of watching that the first time it is a movie i go back to from time to time because i do like the balancing of the humor and the seriousness and the horror i do think that's quite successful in the first film and the second film is actually pretty good too yeah not as strong as the first not by a long shot but you get to see how things have changed for the characters over the last 10 years what things have become different what things have stayed the same tyler hasi is still the exact same person he was 10 years previous and so is Columbus. But the real person who's changed the most is Little Rock. She's become a young woman. She wants to leave the nest. And Tallahassee is really struggling with that because she's become a surrogate daughter to him for the past 10 years. And it's also messy because the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, so everything is complicated further by the emergence of a new type of zombie. Several, in fact. There are the dumb, stupid zombies that just hobble around, which are referred to as homers. There were the sneakier, more insidious ninja zombies. Then a new version of the zombies have emerged. Much more resilient, much faster, and much smarter. They're called T-800s, after the Terminators. I quite like this one. It's not as strong as the first, but I had a good time with it. There's also a really funny Zoe Dutch performance here as Madison. Yeah, she's really funny in this. And she's just taking the performance of this really ditzy valley girl right to its highest extreme and it is really funny because they live for a portion in the movie in the white house mm. and this is post 2009 white house so it's obama administration white house no buckets of kfc left everywhere it, it is interesting to see a world frozen in time mm. like that only to be reclaimed by nature in certain spots it, it is interesting and it also explores different ways people have dealt with the zombie apocalypse. Some people just go out to hunt zombies. Some people are nomads, like our main group. Some people have established themselves in hippie pacifist communes. Yeah, like actual communities have started to spring up in the past 10 years. Yeah. So you can... What did we watch this on? I think we watched this on Netflix. Yes. We have also watched, speaking of Hellraiser, we have watched Hellraiser. Right. The first movie. You guys haven't seen any of the Hellraisers before this, have you? Not yet. No, but I have listened to an audiobook of The Hellbound Heart. This is Hellraiser. It is directed and written by Clive Barker, based on the Clive Barker short story, The Hellbound Heart. In this film, sexual deviant Frank inadvertently opens a portal to hell when he tinkers with a box he bought while in Morocco, because anything goes in Morocco. The act unleashes gruesome beings called Cenobites, who are angels to some, demons to others. Their further explorers in the realms of human experience, be it pleasure or pain. 
they tear Frank's body apart. When Frank's brother, played by Andrew Robertson, and his wife Julia, played by Claire Higgins, move into Frank's old house, they accidentally bring what is left of Frank back to life. Frank then convinces Julia, his one-time lover, to lure men back to the house so he can use their blood to reconstruct himself. I had seen several videos about this movie before we watched it, so I was aware of the tone I was going in for, but it is still nice to know that this is a movie with tension, that this is a movie that takes its time. Mm. This isn't about demons coming from hell, ripping people apart, butchering scores of people like the later Hellraiser films. This is much more vague and interesting as to the nature of the Cenobites and the Lament configuration that summons them. If you're going to watch any of the sequels, you should watch the second one because it is like a direct sequel to this. Yeah. But also I would recommend, just as a taste of some of the weirdness that the director video sequels got into, I think it's Hell World, but it's it's basically... Oh, that's the one in the video game, isn't it? It's not in the video game, but it's basically, you know, Pinhead is coming through uh, an MMO. <laughs> Wasn't that one of the ones that was definitely a different movie? Oh yeah, for sure. Like, and it's not good, but it's it's bonkers <laughs> and kind of entertaining. You've got a really deranged Lance Henriksen in it, but you've also got a pre-Superman Henry Cavill. So, yeah. and, and I think Scott Derrickson, the director of Doctor, Doctor Strange, Strange and Sinister. Yes, he directed. I'm not sure if it was that one, but no, he directed Hellraiser Inferno. Which I wouldn't recommend yeah. that you watch. It's not good. Have you seen Bloodlines? I've seen all of them, Sean. For better or worse, I've seen all what of them. What did you think about like this space shit in Bloodlines? I think that's fascinating. Look, it would have been better if it was all in space. Or if they just picked a lane. I mean, they tried to hedge their bets too much. And there was like part of it was in, in the future. Part of it was in present day. And then another part of it was in like the time of the Marquis de Sade and Versailles. Apparently, there was a lot of studio interference. Yeah, yeah studio interference. The original intention was to... Have the movie be in sequential order. Be yeah. In- yeah. If you if you go into the history of the Hellraiser franchise, there's a lot of weird studio friction and things. I mean, there have mm. literally been books written about the Hellraiser franchise. And I mean, the director of Bloodlines had to Alan Smithy. It. Yeah. The Arrow Blu-ray for the first two that I saw had these like gigantic two-hour documentaries on them. It has been quite a journey. I mean, really, only Leprechaun competes with it in terms of, like, immediate turn into trashiness. I mean, it's not like Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street where, I mean, these continue to be theatrical releases and yeah. or or even something like, I don't know, the, the Chucky movies where you got, like, a good four or five theatrical releases out of it before you switch to direct-to-video. It's like, no, that this pivot happened, like, really quickly and the quality dropped, like, instantaneously after those first two. And went to depths that a lot of the others did not go to. <laughs> to be fair, this first Hellraiser is a real showstopper. It's Clive Barker's first directing in a film. And let me tell you, you can absolutely trace the decline in respectability to how involved Clive Barker is in the sequels. <laughs> like, oh, absolutely, the less involved yeah. he is, the trashier and, and more throwaway they get. Yeah, exactly. And Clive Barker does a really interesting job here. It obviously has hallmarks of a first directing job yeah because everyone's first project is rough you know but what really comes strongly here is the practical effects really incredible stuff watching frank reconstitute himself with that music that score 
is just an incredible effort. Really yeah. remarkable stuff. And the makeup effects on boneless and skinless Frank and all that stuff. Yeah. It's just really remarkable stuff. And also on the Cenobites themselves, Pinhead, Butterball, Chatterer, Deep Throat, they all look so creepy. I do love uh, the Chatterer. Yeah. He just seems happy to be here, Yeah, you know? Doug Bradley as Pinhead yeah. is fantastic. There's a reason why he became the poster boy for the franchise. Which was yeah. not Barker's original intent. He wanted Julia yeah. to be the recurring yes. villain. And she does appear in the second film. Yeah, Bradley was the one that everyone latched onto him. And Pinhead isn't even his name in the, in the first movie. It's and, the Priest of Hell. Yeah. But I mean, I think in the in the credits, Bradley is credited as lead Cenobite. Yeah, yeah, and sort of the intention during the making of the first Hellraiser was to have Butterball be the leader, but the actor couldn't talk and couldn't hear and couldn't see through the makeup, and then it's like, oh, okay, Chatterer then, but he couldn't talk or see. The lines were given to Pinhead and Deep Throat, and it's just it it works oddly enough. This movie is often dreamlike. It oftentimes has the weirdest acting choices. Yeah. All for the better. There's a scene early on in the movie where Julia is flirting with one of the movalists, and Andrew Robinson, who does a remarkable job late into the movie, he has this weird <laughs> look in his face and a weird line read like, I'll go get the beers from the kitchen. I'm not needed here. As if they've got an arrangement yeah. wink wink it's such a fascinating movie mm. and having listened to the audiobook the changes made are made for the better the change of kirsty becoming the daughter makes all of the sexual shit with frank so much creepier yeah. and the movie is an exploration of the senses it is an exploration yeah. of pleasure and pain and Clive Barker really wanted to make that clear, which is something that the later films simply don't understand. That it's the human beings who are the villains. Yeah, it's those who seek further experience that can sometimes lose themselves. Further experience at the expense of others. Yeah, there's a lot that's inherently predatory about Frank and eventually Julia. Yeah. Which makes... Lines like, Come to daddy. Really upsetting to hear coming out of Frank. Yeah. There's a reason that this movie has become legendary. Why it's born a franchise that eventually became so painful. There's a lot of cosmic horror elements that get established in the second film, I understand. And I would like to watch that one eventually as well. Mm. Yeah. Definitely because after watching Amityville 1992, It's About Time, Tony Randell has such an interesting idea about cosmic horror. The franchise is set to make a, a comeback. It really did devolve yeah. quite quickly. By the time you get to the last two Hellraiser movies, Hellraiser Revelations and Hellraiser Judgment, they're literally being made for $300,000 each. But there is actually a new Hellraiser movie set to come out later this year on Hulu. Mm. It's a Hulu original movie. It's like a, a reboot in it. Pinhead is is female, but it's directed by David Bruckner, who directed The Night House. Mm. So I'm quite looking forward to that. Which apparently I read something and I'm not 100% sure if this is legit, but that The Night House was not only inspired by Hellraiser, but was intended as a Hellraiser film, which 
I'm not 100% sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. It makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah. After having watched The Night House, I am fully on board with what Bruckner wants to do yeah. with this. And Clive Barker seems to be as well, because he's producing. Yes. But simultaneously with that, there is also an HBO series in development from David Gordon Green, who directed the the new Halloween movies. Of course. Clive Barker is producing that as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Danny McBride is also an executive producer. He was, was a co-screenwriter on the Halloween ones. Michael Doherty is going to be one of the main writers. He wrote Trick or Treat and Krampus. <laughs> oh, okay. It's looking up for the Hellraiser franchise. Yeah. You know, things are looking promising. Franchise horror itself is looking up. It really is. I can't wait till we get the eventual reemergence of Jason Voorhees out of Crystal Lake. Yeah. Because really, he's the last one. All those teenagers, they couldn't stop Jason. Only copyright could. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hopefully, now that that seems like it's resolved, we can start seeing a, a return from him. And you know yeah. Freddy Krueger's going to, you know, rear his head soon. I mean, who's he owned by? New Line. So that that's still a Warner Brothers property. So you know they're looking for their for content for HBO Max. You know they're looking into it. I just do think it's hilarious that Tommy Jarvis couldn't do a damn thing against Jason, but the US copyright law could. Mm. It's the same thing as, you know, what happened to Al Capone. They couldn't get him on the murders. They had to get him (laughs) on a technicality. (laughs) Did you know that there was almost a Friday the 13th CW series? Oh, no, more. Recently, too, like 2015, like around that era. (laughs) They filmed the pilot. This was just before all of that copyright stuff started off. And then the pilot came back and the CW was like, this Friday the 13th show is way too dark. <laughs> you think? And it was like, oh, we, we weren't expecting this, this show based on Friday the 13th to be as violent and scary as it is. So they didn't go then ahead with it. Then they go forward and make Riverdale. Mm. Huh. Oh, we watched Hellraiser on Amazon Prime. That's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Sunshine. Our sun is dying. Mankind faces extinction. 16 months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun before it's too late. Welcome to Icarus 2. So if you wake up one morning, and it's a particularly beautiful day, 
You'll know we made it. That was the trailer for Sunshine. It is a science fiction thriller directed by Danny Boyle, and it is set in the year 2057, when the sun is dying. Ha! We can only hope. Humanity's Last Chance is a long-shot space mission funded by all the governments of the world to drop a bomb into the sun's core, which will hopefully restore it. To that end, a multinational group of astronauts has been dispatched on a years-long mission to deliver what they call the payload, and hopefully save the world. The captain of the mission is the stoic Kaneda, played by Hiroyuki Sonata, and he has his work cut out for him, because a combination of personality clashes and the sheer psychological toll of spending years in a confined space with each other has generated interpersonal friction among the crew. Kappa, played by Killian Murphy, the physicist tasked with deploying the bomb properly, is becoming an increasingly common target for Mace, played by Chris Evans, the ship's engineer. Corazon, played by Michelle Yeoh, the biologist entrusted with maintenance of the ship's organic garden which provides them with oxygen, is more interested in her plants than her colleagues, and Cassie, played by Rose Byrne, the pilot, is haunted by the feeling that there will be no return voyage. Harvey, played by Troy Garrity, the communications officer and second-in-command, has a hard time inspiring much respect in his comrades, whilst Searle, played by Cliff Curtis, the ship's psych officer, has become so enchanted with the sheer power of the sun that he has taken to staring at it for long periods of time on the ship's observation deck. So long, in fact, that the skin on his face is sunburnt and beginning to peel. Not great for the psych officer. Only Trey, played by Benedict Wong, the navigator, seems ship-shape, and he is soon to be tested when the ship makes an unexpected detour. You see, their ship is the Icarus II, named as such because the Icarus I tried to accomplish this mission eight years earlier and was never heard from again. Now, as they get closer and closer to the sun, they pick up a distress call from that long-lost ship and decide to divert course to dock with it. The idea is to recover its bomb and thus make success all the more likely. Two bombs make a larger explosion than one, after all, but when Trey forgets to adjust the sun shield to accommodate for that change in direction, Things start to go bad. That one mistake cascades and expands, setting off a catastrophic domino effect that endangers not only the crew and their ship, but humanity itself. An even more dangerous surprise is waiting for them on the Icarus 1, however, something far worse than human error. The thing about Icarus is that when he flew too close to the sun, he got burned. So, Before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of this movie. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. It is not lost on me, the beautiful, like, insanity of it being called The Icarus. I just love that. And I love this movie. It is so well put together. The character interactions are brilliant. It's taking inspiration from Alien from 2001 A Space Odyssey. There's even, like, sprinkles of Event Horizon in here with some of the more supernaturally elements. And I find it very fascinating. And the closer we get to the sun, the more strange things happen, and I really love that. All right. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I had a really good time with this one. I think it's extremely well shot. The special effects really do still hold up to this day. 
It's truly a remarkable achievement of effect work. But the characters are really strong as well. The dynamics are really well achieved. And the cinematography is incredible. I will never go to space. Hate that shit. (laughs) Never, ever. (laughs) All right. I'll set myself up here then. I love this movie. Uh, It is probably my favorite movie of 2007. I've seen it many times now. I first tuned in on it on television during the scene in which Kaneda bites it. And (laughs) I was hooked from that point on. It is visually stunning. It is incredibly compelling. I love the score. And uh, I, I third your agreement that space is a mistake. <laughs> I am fine with space being out there. Yeah. I just don't want to go there, yeah. Like, it's important that we have, like, the sun and stars, moon and shit. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> and it's all fascinating. We don't belong up there. Exactly. We don't belong on the deep ocean. We don't belong in space. All right, I have a production history here. Following the release of the 2004 film Millions, Danny Boyle was looking for a new project. Have you guys ever seen Millions? I don't believe so, no. No, I haven't seen Millions. I've seen a few of Danny Boyle's other movies. Like, I've seen Trainspotting. I've seen Slumdog Millionaire, 28 Days Later. I'm a fan of his, but I haven't seen Millions. Millions was the first one I saw of his when I was like a kid, but um, I didn't know who Danny Boyle was, really. It's like this kid who is going through like a personal crisis and he's playing by the side of a railroad tracks one day when uh, robbers who are on the train and about to be cornered by police throw a bag full of money off the train and it literally lands in his lap. And because this kid is an idiot, he thinks it's from God. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's definitely a weird one. It's is the odd odd one out of uh, of Danny Boyle's filmography. But uh, he was he was coming off of that movie, and he was briefly attached to a movie about the 1999 Worcester Cold Storage Warehouse fire. But there was a lot of opposition to that from uh, the family of the people who died there, and from firefighters unions and things. It was really soon after that event. Uh, And so that didn't end up going forward. And at the same time, Alex Garland, who wrote 28 Days Later, as well as the novel The Beach was based on, uh, both of them obviously Danny Boyle movies, was working on a script inspired by a bunch of scientific articles that he had read and a fascination that he was developing with the idea of the heat death of the universe. And that got him thinking about what happens to Earth if the sun died. And he took that idea to Boyle, and Boyle jumped at it. Boyle had always wanted to do a space movie. He likes to challenge himself, and he liked the idea of the challenge of doing a science fiction film. And so they worked together on the script for a year, and they pitched it to 20th Century Fox, who had produced The Beach and 28 Days Later with them. They were wary of this particular brand of science fiction, though, after the massive failure of the George Clooney remake of Solaris a few years prior. They bought it, but they sent it to their specialty arm, Fox Searchlight, and they also flinched at the budget that was being asked of them. And so the producers sought out outside contributors and made use of a ton of United Kingdom government rebates for filmmaking. Scientific advisors and futurists were hired to help guide the science, including particle physicist Brian Cox, who gave lectures to the cast. The film received criticism and still does, for the obvious scientific inaccuracies of an explosion relighting the sun. But 
that's not what actually is going on here. The the backstory that was mapped out just didn't end up making its way into the final version of the movie that was filmed. But the backstory is that what is known as a cue ball has penetrated the sun and is destroying it from the inside. A cue ball is a theoretical, non-topological soliton. I quote Wikipedia here, A cue ball arises in a theory of bosonic particles when there is an attraction between the particles. Loosely speaking, the cue ball is a finite-sized blob containing a large number of particles. The blob is stable against fission into smaller blobs and against evaporation via emission of individual particles because, due to the attractive interaction, the blob is the lowest energy configuration of that number of particles. This is analogous to the fact that nickel-62 is the most stable nucleus because it is the most stable configuration of neutrons and protons. However, nickel-62 is not a cue ball, in part because neutrons and protons are fermions, not bosons. Now, I have no fucking idea what that means. But my understanding is that it is more scientifically accurate than sun going out, but Big Boom relights it. So they're planning to use the nukes to eradicate all of the what's essentially flubber yes the the bombs are designed to destroy the cue ball why did you have to reference flubber but that explanation never made it into the final cut i can see why (laughs) that would take 30 minutes to just sit down and explain it one of the characters would have to pull out a whiteboard we're talking about the the primer version of sunshine at that point (laughs) but That wasn't the only thing that didn't make it into the final cut of the movie. There were a lot of character backstories that were written for all of the characters to give the actors context for the way that they gave their performance. None of that stuff ever made it on screen. I'm going to quote here from the the TV Tropes page for Sunshine because it is probably the most detailed on the internet that I can find listing these. Kappa was a child prodigy who wrote a paper that contributed huge amounts to the understanding of dark matter. His theory ended up starting the whole Icarus mission in the first place. He's also an atheist and a loner by choice. He's also the only member of the crew that isn't a career astronaut, which isolates him from the others. Cassie is a trained pilot who entered the space program after serving time in the military. To be a part of the Icarus mission, she became she got an abortion of a of a pregnancy that she was in the early stages of. Searle is the only other member of the crew who knows this in his role as psych officer. Corazon is a pragmatist dedicated to preserving life as a whole, more concerned with ensuring the survival of Earth as a biosphere as opposed to mankind. She's the only one of the crew that never uses the Earth room. Instead, she sits in the oxygen garden for comfort. Harvey worked as a juvenile engineer on the Icarus One project, and he is the fittest member of the group. I challenge that, given the presence of Chris Evans. But uh, his Achilles heel is his wife. He misses her terribly, dreams of her every night, and is motivated to get back to her. Oh, Harvey. Dude, why'd you go to space in the first place? To save her. Someone else would have taken your place, bud. Like, no one comes back from space. We know this by now. Kaneda is a Buddhist who feels a team dad attitude towards the crew, especially Kappa, and they often play chess together. He is the only crew member to ever have met Pinbacker personally, and as such has nightmares of him every night. Trey was a hacker in his teenage years and managed to create a virus that wiped out 12% of the world's computer systems temporarily. Hmm. Instead of jail, he was recruited by the space program to help them in this insane scheme to relight the sun. Uh, 
He's also a control freak who hates for any variables to be calculated by anyone but him, including the computer. This adds extra dimension to his guilt at messing up the numbers when the mission is diverted. Searle is on the crew because he put forth a theory that the first mission failed because there was no psych officer, and frankly, it's probably right. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And he himself developed the Earth Room as a means of therapy. He's also a psychiatrist as opposed to a psychologist, which means he can prescribe medication. Mace is an army brat and came to know Cassie from their time in the military. He still harbours a small crush on her. As someone with an immense respect for the chain of command, he dislikes Kappa because, as the only non-astronaut on the crew, he exists outside of it. So that stuff was all written to be given to the, the actors and help them to contextualise their performances. I think you can certainly see a lot of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it all tracks. But there was also a romantic subplot in the original script at one point between Kappa and Cassie, which you can also see the remnants of when they're talking in, in Kappa's bedroom. Uh, that was originally going to have an, a, a sex scene in the oxygen garden, but Danny Boyle cut it because he decided it really seemed silly given all of the, the seriousness going on around it. But that that also contextualised Mace's dislike of Kappa. Yeah. Mm. But... Uh, The third act pivot to Space Slasher is a routine point of criticism for this movie. And you will find in a lot of the critical reception to it, that is the point that people keep coming back to, the mainstream critical establishment keep coming back to, that the movie stops being what it was and becomes a movie that they didn't really want. Uh, And and to be fair, that is something that a, a lot of viewers express as well. But this itself also seems to be a point of contention between Garland and Boyle. In a 2015 interview with IndieWire, Alex Garland said he has a problem with the ending and that he doesn't think he'll collaborate with Boyle again. This was the last time they worked together. He's extremely careful in that interview to emphasise it as a creative disagreement rather than a personal one and that they simply had different visions for the movie. I have a collection of quotes here that I've from him in that interview that I've stitched together. What I can see in Sunshine is I can see unresolved tensions. I can see different movies being made simultaneously. And I can see things that simply could have... It's so difficult for me to talk about this. I learned an enormous amount from Danny and I respect him hugely. He's a real director. He's a real film director. Not all directors are real film directors. He is. He has stunning strengths and abilities. We're not always completely compatible because ultimately what I want to do is put an agenda first. Everything is in service of an agenda, and Danny has a terrific instinct towards viscerality and compulsion. Of course, viscerality and compulsion, if you're making 28 days, then you're both in a perfect sync and perfectly riffing off each other as collaborators. Sunshine, in my mind, was closer to Ex Machina, tonally, and it had a more reflective quality. And sometimes viscerality and reflection were fighting for space on that movie. It was like a balance issue. But what I really want to underscore strongly is the most significant failures in Sunshine, from my point of view, were not in Danny's direction, they were in the script. They predated the shoot or the editing, and what we were never able to do was to fix the problems in the script, because we had a different methodology in terms of how that fix might happen. And it would be completely wrong for me to either state or discreetly imply that the issues in Sunshine that exist rest at Danny's feet. That's not how I see it. The difficulty was more in agreeing on what the problem was, but disagreeing on the solution. If I'm going to define what the failings of Sunshine are, what I'm going to say is this. It lost track with itself. It veered away sometimes. 
It had a meaning and it had an argument and it would separate from that to create a quick sort of hit of something. Then it would try to pull itself back. The more it tried to do that, the more the elastic started to stretch. After Sunshine, I did think to myself, I can't work exactly like this again. I love Danny. I actually love the film. Whatever I say about Sunshine and its problems, I actually loved Sunshine. Mm. There was also a lot more of an overt, you know, sort of religious element to the sun and to the experience that Pinbacker especially is having with the sun. That was going to be more in the forefront in Garland's original vision. Boyle pulled a lot of that out because he found it distracting. So it really does seem like there's a bit of a competing vision there. But ultimately, if that's what inspires Alex Garland to go out on his own and start directing his his own movies, you know, it's no real loss. I mean, I love Sunshine and now we get Alex Garland movies. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Mm. When it came to casting, they aimed for an American and Asian group of characters under the assumption that the US and China would be the leaders of a worldwide effort like this. The actors were all made to board together to establish a group dynamic. The exception to that was Killian Murphy, who had a newborn at the time, but this actually ended up helping reinforce his isolation as the only non-astronaut in the group. They also all did space training courses, learned to scuba dive, toured a nuclear submarine to observe cramped living conditions, operated a flight simulator, and went in a zero-g acrobatic plane to experience weightlessness. The film was shot on sets spread out over eight sound stages. It was filmed during the British summer, which made it difficult for the actors because of all of the spacesuits that they kept having to put on. Underworld and John Murphy's soundtrack has received particular acclaim since the film's release. The track Adagio in D minor has become famous beyond the movie. It is the track that is heard a few times in the movie, but is first heard during Canada's death. It has since been used in tons of stuff, including The Walking Dead, The Lovely Bones, Kick-Ass, 911, and Wonder Woman 1984, as well as the trailers for X-Men Days of Future Past and Star Trek Into Darkness, and commercials for Dior Perfume, Samsung, and Nike. Hmm. John Murphy just racking in that money, baby. Him and Underworld, yeah. The movie was originally set for a late 2006 release before being pushed into 2007, where it was released in the UK on the 6th of April 2007. The US release was on the 20th of July. The studio had no idea what to do with it. Its widest release in America was in 461 theatres. At best, it was number 13 at the box office against new releases The Simpsons Movie, No Reservations, I Know Who Killed Me, and the Jeffrey Jones starring Who's Your Caddy, a golf comedy which has a 2.2 rating on IMDb. The movie was a box office bomb. It made $35 million on a $40 million budget. It is the 129th highest grossing movie of 2007. It was released before the US, but after the UK in Australia on the 12th of April. Its widest release here was in 163 theatres. It opened number eight against Disturbia and Stomp the Yard. It made $1.6 million of its gross here. It received a generally positive critical reception. It has a 76% Rotten Tomatoes rating. The critics' consensus there reads, Danny Boyle continues his descent into mind-twisting sci-fi madness, taking us along for the ride. Sunshine fulfills the dual requisite necessary to become classic sci-fi. Dazzling visuals with intelligent action. 
The movie was passed over for a lot of awards that, in my opinion, it should have been nominated for. I think, if nothing else, this should be a music and visual effects nominee in a lot of places. But it was not. A failure at at the box office often can uh, contribute to a lack of success awards-wise. But it did get a few nominations and wins from um, some more genre outlets. The Saturn Awards nominated it for Best Science Fiction Film. The Golden Schmoes Awards nominated it for Most Underrated Movie of the Year, Trippiest Movie of the Year, Best Sci-Fi Movie of the Year, and Best Special Effects of the Year. And the Scream Awards nominated it for Best Science Fiction Movie, Best Sci-Fi Star for Killian Murphy, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Ha, ha, ha. I get it. Funny. I get it, it's a pun on Scream and Screen, how they sound similar. Ha. Danny Boyle has since called making the film a spiritually exhausting experience due to how complicated it was, and says he will never return to the science fiction genre. That's fair. (laughs) He is satisfied with the movie, though. He wanted the challenge, and he got it, and he overcame it, and he's satisfied with that. He knocked a home run the first time. I think he's good. So that is the production history of Sunshine. And uh, I want to talk about, I suppose, the brutality of space in this movie Um, and the scariness of space. I think that's a good place to start out. I mean, they called the ship the Icarus. (laughs) Yeah, that's like a a bad look. Like, you you rename it after the first Icarus goes. Like, that's just bad omens. But even then, it's like, Icarus, man. I get why they named it that, like, for the film. But the people in that universe are morons. You're just tempting fate. If I was living on Earth and news came back that the Icarus one failed, I would be like, no shit, Sherlock, of course it did. you got to think of the timeline of this, though, because they're past that point of communication. So it's actually even scarier. It's literally years of waiting and nothing happening. And then actually they should have been back by now. And that's the horror at the end there is that no one's actually going to know that they died completing the mission for years. Mm. You mentioned before we started recording sort of a similarity between this movie and Ad Astra, and mm-hmm. I agree with it. It's sort of the the brutality of the frontier of space, the idea that, it you know, if you're out there in the cold dark and something goes wrong, you're kind of screwed. That is, I mean, the great thing of it is all of the mistakes cascade so completely. I mean, the, the, the most minor of human errors and it creates a second problem and a third problem and and uh, and solving those first three problems create like six more. Like, And just think about it this way. Going back to the frontier times, both in the US and Australia, travel itself was inherently dangerous. Oh, yeah. Just think about things like the Donner Party. The, when you go out into the wilderness where there appears to be nothing... You're setting yourself up for a very, very dangerous and dicey time. Then you consider uh, travel over water Hmm. and how dangerous that can be and deep sea exploration. And then you take it even further into space. You cannot control anything in space. On land and on the sea, gravity still is a fixture. Yeah, it's still life-supporting. The simple existence in that area is possible. Yeah. You have methods of survival if something goes awry. You're not likely to survive, but the the sea and on land are places that make sense to us. And help could come find you. We, on this planet, are built to exist here. 
Yeah. Here. Not out there. Out there is something separate entirely. Which plays into the sort of biblical or the religious elements that we can go into. Although I suppose you could read it a couple of ways. You could read it as a religious element in that you know, that's clearly how Pinbacker interprets, interprets it. But it can also be read as a very overt cosmic horror element. This idea that we were never supposed to go up there. We were always supposed to stay down here. And there's this almost Tower of Babel kind of mm, feeling like... Yeah. We must know our place. Yeah, we need to know our place or we're all going to be, you know, smacked down. But I want to, I really do want to talk about, I suppose, to, to really piggyback off of that, this topic, that first sequence with the shields. Because like I said during my 30 seconds, that was, I was channel flipping one night and that was the scene that was on. And that John Murphy score is coming out and... I was hooked from that point onward. I mean, I... Just watching Hiroyuki Sonata just get absolutely shit mixed by the sun. <laughs> it is such an incredible moment, and yeah. it's so well done, and you're, you're really seeing... I mean, it, it's signposts to you right away that this is going to be a movie with no survivors, I think. Mm, I yeah. think the fact that the captain goes that early... The simple fact of fixing that first mistake sets the oxygen garden on fire. It really does cast this level of sort of doom over the whole proceedings. It emphasizes the danger of it. I mean, it is probably one of my favorite scenes of the 2000s, that whole sequence with Kaneda, you know, fixing it, turning to face the sun, that, that music blooming. There's like a self-defeating element to, I don't know, even the mission itself. They know that the first Icarus disappeared, just frankly disappeared. And I don't know, it's, there's just something so terrifying about them being the second try. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than the first. There's already that sense of, we've failed once, it is not out of the realm of possibility. In fact, it is more likely that we'll fail a second time, and this yeah. will be it. Yeah, because all of the Earth's remaining fissile material was used to create that bomb. Mm. Like, it really goes to show, like, this is the last chance. Yeah. And that just puts everything onto a knife's edge, you know? Not only do we know that it can fail, because it's failed before, this is it. It puts Trey to the knife edge too, because like literally, literally, like he he fails like one thing. He forgets part of the job that wasn't part of his job. The com towers. He he forgets the fact that the com towers in, and that's what starts this cascade of just shit happening. Just everything falling completely out of control. Yeah, 
and he blames himself and he just can't do it anymore. He can't do it anymore, so he takes his own life. That whole sequence with the sun shields with the oxygen garden going, it is... When the oxygen garden gone, went, I was like, no, 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 that's... Oh, they're, they're dead. They're all dead. They're fucked. But it's it's sort of this establishing of an incredible feeling of tension and dread, the movie that then maintains for the rest of its runtime. and. It starts to demonstrate a lot of the movie's most, in my opinion, a lot of Boyle's most interesting artistic touches when he's filming the outside stuff. The way that he makes Kappa and Kaneda like pinpricks on this mm. vast tapestry, mm. the way that they're that they are framed against, you know, the the endlessness of the cosmos. That's then repeated so often. I mean, there's the jump between the Icarus 1 and the Icarus 2. Uh, the there is Harvey absolutely just cocks it up. Harvey doesn't cock it up. That's something they get hit in a way that they weren't expecting to. But uh, the way that Harvey evaporates in the sun, I mean, there's this, this constant thing that Boyle is doing of reinforcing scale and reinforcing our smallness against that scale. Yeah, and like that's the thing about outer space that's the most terrifying it is just nothing that goes on practically forever mm. and you can have destination sun moon mars all of that sort of shit but up till then there is nothing and so you just have to rely on what's installed on the ship and that's what's so terrifying about when they come across the icarus one that they cannot possibly know what went wrong yeah until they go inside but that's also part of like that whole we were talking about Ad Astra, you know that 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 sort of similar, I suppose, feeling and atmosphere, that idea of being alone in the dark, and that we are just this tiny little part of this this vast stretch of nothing, and it's it's really like like the whole of reality almost is geared to kill us, except for this one little part that just through sheer luck of evolution and happenstance we found ourselves on the precariousness of our position as a species hurtling around a giant fireball at millions of kilometers an hour on a rock i mean yeah like there is like an existential like extraordinariness to that that's almost yeah. impossible to comprehend mm. that this movies like ad astra and this tap into yeah. that mm. yeah and it's interesting because it's tapping into like the opposite things Mm. Like because in Ad Astra, the whole thing with Tommy Lee Jones is that oh, he's spoiler going to alert in advance for Ad Astra. Skip thirty seconds so, if you don't want to hear. Yeah. Tommy Lee Jones is near Pluto. He is the furthest away from anybody else that anyone has ever been ever in this movie. Now he has come to the conclusion there is nothing out there. Yeah, the God does not exist. Aliens do not exist. We are alone. And in that loneliness, he's gone completely mad and he's killed everyone. Mm. What has happened with Pinbaker here is he's so close to the sun, he started to see the sun as a god. That there is a god, that the sun's been talking to him, and he's killed all of his crew. Did you ever watch Ren and Stimpy? Uh, I've no. seen bits and pieces. There was this whole, really there's it. this whole segment of it where it's like imagining Ren and Stimpy in like a space thing and it's like... Cadet Stimpy and I are on a 36-year mission to the corner galaxy for a pack of gum. And I grow tired. I suspect Cadet Stimpy has been 
plotting against me. His mind is taken by space madness. That's what Searle is on the knife edge of. Like he's he is almost about to spill over into space madness, which is never great to be locked in what's what is essentially a giant floating coffin with someone with space madness. One shouldn't be addicted to the sun, uh, just as a general rule. Searle's gone even if the mission was an entire success. Searle has cancer. Like this he he's by the time they get back to Earth, he's he's one giant walking skin cancer. He's not lasting long. Like like that boy is a melanoma. I agree with Harley and I think that is life lessons to live by. Don't be obsessed with the sun. It reminds me of a joke that an, an old friend of mine told me when I was 12 and I found unreasonably funny, where he looked at a person with extreme sunburn and said to me, well, he's well done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Pinbaker is. Like, this boy is cooked. This guy's like he's been in the microwave for far too long. Going on to the Icarus one is such a tense scene because I'm sitting there just going, there's a survivor. There's one person left. There has to be. I think the thing that freaked you out, though, Harley, was the little flash. Yes. Where the you had to take it back because you were unsure if, there's, if the stream of Disney Plus was fucking up or not. Yeah. I thought I was having a moment. <laughs> that is one of, one of Boyle's interesting, and he does this in a lot of movies. He has a lot of interesting flourishes and a little, lot of interesting things that he, he adds into the visual aesthetic of it. He chucks in these free, these freeze frames of Pinbacker. Well, it's not just Pinbacker, it's the rest of the crew. You sort of know how screwed they are if you recognise Mark Strong. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's sort of like, oh, well, this isn't going to end well. Like, rarely does it go well when Mark Strong appears in a movie, but, <laughs> like, the given the context, I'm assuming we're about to meet Mark Strong and it ain't going to go well. I mean, like, the moment you see Mark Strong on the little bloody thing that Kanita's uh, watching, you just think to yourself, oh shit, is that violent Stanley Tucci Mark, Mark Strong? <laughs> yes, British British Stanley Tucci, yeah. And when you think about it, the Oxygen Garden on the Icarus one is beautiful. It is overgrown, it is producing so much oxygen, it is pristine. The rest of the ship is covered in a fine layer of human dust. Uh, so technically, they're always in the presence of the crew. The, like, they they find the crew, it's just they are dust now. And they eventually do find, like, where their bodies are, but, like, I, I love the fact that over the past seven or so years, the dust that has accumulated in this place is predominantly from, like, the decay of objects, the skin that the crew has left behind. The moment they step on, the reason why we are seeing these flashes of the faces of the other crew members is because they are there and the moment the first little piece of dust touches a little piece of skin on one of Icarus 2's people that is a meeting you're meeting the crew members of the Icarus 1 and then they go to the sunroom and everyone's just like Mount Vesuvius themselves yeah that is the interesting thing and one of the like the chilling thing is it's it's actually not that Pimbacker has killed them he hasn't it's that they all went the way that Pimbacker did Pimback is the only one that decided to stick around because he was, you know, the conversation with God was getting real good. So he thought he'd keep it going a bit. Like, I like the idea that he sat 
with them because there's that empty spot there right next to them where Pinbacker must have been sitting. I like the idea that the fact he's so burnt now is everyone else sat there. He broke the faith and ran away. I kind of like it if, like, like a prophet, he survived also. Yeah, <laughs> that is far more fucked up and far more interesting and adds a supernatural tinge, which I always love with space stuff. I like when, like, it is literally our encroachment upon the heavens that sets off this chain reaction of spooky shit happening. That's why I'm so fascinated by cosmic horror. And think of the way that Boyle shoots Pinbacker. We never get a good shot of him. There's always that juddering. There's always that light. It's like looking at the surface of the sun. Exactly. That's a sort of thematic positioning of him as sort of an agent of the sun, as sort of this guy who is, I don't know, in some in some ways become an avatar of the sun. And, well, it is the thing. Every culture on the planet in some way worships the sun as the high king god. Raw. Apollo, you've got a Mesopotamian religions, you've got Mayan religions. You've got Norse religions. Shit, even in Christianity, what is the thing that is around the heads of depictions of God, angels, Jesus, a halo, the image of the sun, the Aten disc, resurgent as a symbol of Christianity and power? What is Jesus? one of Jesus's titles? The son of God. Like, and, and here's the thing, too. What do we still, to this day, even worship in a secular sense? The sun gives us life. The sun is the sole reason life exists here. Ah, sole reason. I see what you did there. That was unintentional, but... There is that simultaneous, like, religious parallel to it that Pimbacker brings. L- like, there's the Icarus thing, the idea of flying too close to the sun and... The, the idea of going to going beyond our purview as human beings and sort of challenging the the natural order of things and being punished for that. And I mentioned the Tower of Babel. That's a story in, in Christian mythology that all of the nations of the earth used to speak the same language and that everyone came together and, and built this big tower because they were going to reach God. They were going to climb up to heaven, make this big tower of Babel, knock on the door, say, hi, God, how are you? And uh, God was like, no, you're not. (laughs) And he smote the hell out of them and flung all of the different tribes to different parts of of the earth, separated everyone and made everyone speak a different language. But again, it is that story of the Tower of Babel. It is that story of Icarus. It is that idea of, of... it, it, it's connecting the two almost in the sort of coming too close to God, going it's like beyond. You don't belong here. We don't exactly. We don't belong here. We're stepping past our purview. There is there was a um I can't remember who says it. I think Courtesan says something along these lines as well, and I think Pinbacker does. But the idea of if nature, if reality has decided it's our time to go, if if what gives us life is no longer viable and and we are going to go into that good night, then who are we to contradict nature and physics? It kind of reminds me of um, Dark Souls in a weird way. (laughs) Like the cycle of the time of ash, the time of fire, and how it is the struggle to reset the flame 
that creates like the ashen ones and all that shit. Are you insinuating that sunshine is the dark souls of movies? Yes. Never, never played Dark Souls. Don't have the patience for it. But um, neither do neither. I. I've been looking into a lot of the lore, but it's the same general principle. Is like, who are you to say no to what the sun offers? Who are you to fight against the bitter cold? It's also that thing of like, but we fight against these kinds of things because that is the human. That's human nature. Fighting against fatalism and doom. And oftentimes coming out on top. Like, what is it we have always done? We create light. We set fires to beat back the dark. It's what we do. Fire was the first tool we ever had. And even then, what is the what is the Greek story of fire? It's one of the gods betraying the others by giving us fire that we shouldn't have had access to. It's the granting of power to us that should have been reserved by the gods. Yeah. It's not even just fire itself as a functionary of the human planet. It's the fire of inspiration, the fire of human creativity, human ambition. And you see all of Garland's ambitions right there, don't you? That all of that, all of this stuff we're talking about is clearly the stuff that he's talking about in that long quote that I read to you. But I think he's being too hard on himself because I actually think that he and Boyle have managed to preserve a hell of a lot of that in this yeah, story. Absolutely. I mean, thematically at least, like you, it it doesn't have to actually say a lot of these things. It doesn't have to go into an interesting, like transhumanist direction. It doesn't have to go so far into biblical estocology for all of this stuff to actually just be thematically within the structure of the film. And we do get a lot of this sort of religious stuff said by Pin Baker and Pinbacker. the characters opposition to him acts perfectly as an exploration of our relationship to religion and god if there's one mistake i think that boyle made it was that he used a version of the final encounter with pinbacker that he shouldn't have and that's um that's the one bit where i really agree with garland that some of the meaning and the agenda was sacrificed for some tension that obviously in the movie we get that sort of violent encounter between him and Cassie and Kappa, where they literally pull his his skin off his arm and they slide the down and everything. Called degloving. Yes, um, it, it sounds wrong, doesn't it? Like you don't mm. want to be degloved. Like you just hear that phrase without <laughs> even knowing what it means, and you're like, that seems like something that shouldn't happen. But one of, I, and I'm not sure, I couldn't really track down whether it was the original version of this scene or whether it was something that they reshot later but decided to use the original anyway. But there's another version of that encounter on the Blu-ray. And in it, Kappa arrives to detonate the bomb and Cassie is already dead. Yeah. She's just lying dead on the floor and Pinbacker is just sort of sitting there looking at him and doesn't even try to stop him, doesn't even try to engage him. But they just, they, they have a, a short conversation, a lot of which did remain in the version that we got, just yelled in the version that we got rather than spoken. But there's an extra bit of exchange there, which is... For seven years, I spoke with God. Oh, 
God. And uh, then he just lets Kappa walk into the bomb and detonate it. And I think that scene, that version of the scene is actually a lot better than the version that we got. I do think it is more in keeping. I understand what why Boyle might have thought that we needed that little bit more of adrenaline there, that we needed an actual physical encounter. But I actually think it leaves a little too many loose ends. It leaves Cassie lying gasping on the floor. It leaves Pinbacker somewhere. Mm. And it sort of, it just is a little too messy. I, I like the simplicity of that alternate version. Let's talk about some members of the crew. We talked about the captain. Well, let's let's just say an incredible cast. And oh, not yeah. just oh, that, but, but a cast very cannily chosen that has almost all of them become a lot more famous in the time since this movie were made. Absolutely. Like, throw a dart at the wall and you've found an absolutely excellent actor who is going to go forward and do much greater things. The only uh, the only two I would I would argue haven't increased their profile is Cliff Curtis and Troy Garrity who plays Harvey. Um, but Cliff Curtis was already basically at, at the height of his fame at that point. And uh, then Troy Garrity who plays Harvey, who I have seen in other things, but never, it, it was on, you remember? Not a household name. He was a series regular on that Dwayne Johnson HBO show, Ballers. You remember Ballers? You remember the fact that Dwayne Johnson did five seasons as a series regular on an HBO show since from 2015 to 2019, and literally no one talks about it because it's Ballers? (laughs) Yeah. Haven't seen a single moment of that. How did a star like Dwayne Johnson headline a five-season HBO show and no one talks about it? Like, it made no impact whatsoever. It's extraordinary. Like, the same year Dwayne Johnson starred in San Andreas and Fast and Furious 7, he starred in the first season of Ballers. (laughs) Like, Hmm. we're not talking like he started it, then he got famous and he was kind of contractually obliged. Anyways, but yes, Troy Garrity was in that, but everyone else, Killian Murphy, obviously already a well-respected character actor, but becomes a whole lot more famous as the years go on. Michelle Yeoh, coming off of uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, had really gotten her a presence in Western cinema and has only, you know, increased. I mean, I just talked about Everything Everywhere All at Once, um, which she's the main character of. She's in Star Trek also. Hiroyuki Sanada, who Scorpion! Has, exactly, who has gone in to do that. He was in The Wolverine. He's, he's done a bunch of other things. He was Lord Shingen in The Wolverine. Can you believe we exist in a time where the Silver Samurai was also Scorpion. It's dope as hell. I always love seeing him in stuff. Hiroyuki Sonata is always really cool, even when he was in Endgame for barely five minutes. <laughs> Obviously, you've got Rose Byrne, who has become much, much more famous. This was her first big role. Benedict Wong, obviously, gone on to the MCU and Mr. Robot. Chris Evans. He's Chris Evans. Um, He, at that point, had only done, I think, the first of those Fantastic Four movies, and uh, that was really all he was known for. But yeah, and then Mark Strong, who is in everything now. Yeah, like turn a corner, there's Mark Strong. He's prolific. Which is funny, because you only see his face once in this movie. Well, that's what's so effective about the Pinbacker stuff. I do like the discussions of trading lives here, because Michelle Yeoh's character is... Just running the calculations the whole time. How many people do we need first to get back and then to just get to the destination? Mm. Mm. 
Uh, but there's the, the scene that really got to me was it's after they found Benedict Wong's body, and uh, this is the scene right after Killian Murphy is just sitting and doing his own uh, calculations and measurements, and then the ship says there's five people on board, not four. Kappa, warning. You will not live long enough to deliver the payload. Please clarify. Twelve hours before crew will be unable to perform complex tasks. Fourteen hours before crew will be unable to perform basic tasks. Sixteen hours until death. Journey time to delivery point. Nineteen hours. Maybe cars on. We're certain we have remaining oxygen to keep four crew alive. Affirmative. Four crew could potentially survive on Kara's Trey is dead. There are only four crew members. Negative. Affirmative, Icarus. Four crew. Mace, Cassie, Karzan, and me. Five crew members. Poor choice by Kappa not to immediately instruct the computer to tell the other survivors that exact mm. information the second he receives it. Yeah. It's, it's dead to go there himself. He kind of screwed it for everyone. But again, that's just another example of one little mistake becoming a big mistake. I think it's important that you have a cast that strong. I mean, because even like the people who didn't get more famous, poor Troy Garrity... Um, he's really good in this movie. He is! The part where he's, like, screaming at Kappa to get out of the suit while they're on Icarus 1. Like, you just look in everyone's face and it's just no-selling because you're threatening dead people with death. Mm. I-, I do like the fact that he's freaking out until Searle is just like, chill, chill, I'll stay behind. Yeah, I'm not trusting Harvey to hit that button. No, absolutely not. I do love that Searle just sits down on the observation deck and yeah. gets to see the sun very close. He gets what he wants, ultimately. He's having a religious experience. Yeah. Because he has clearly reached an obsession point with the sun. I mean, they do a lot of smart things about the way that these people go out. Like The way that they all go out makes sense and is varied, but is also oftentimes thematically appropriate. That obviously Harvey gets... I mean, that's that's a great shot of Harvey literally freezing and then evaporating. Oh, you see blood exit his mouth and freeze? Hmm. Ugh. Freaks me out. It's interesting that he was the one who froze to death because he was frozen in that sort of... He was frozen in fear. He was frozen in panic. He was frozen in the idea that he was going home. But then, you know, Michelle Yeoh... I mean, she gets maybe the cruelest death just as she's mm. discovered that one plant in the oxygen garden has survived, that there's this one little sapling. She gets stabbed in the back. And it's interesting because there is a fan theory that you'll find in some sort of discussion boards on the internet that Trey, Benedict Wong's character, didn't kill himself, that that's Pinbacker. Mm. I don't think that that, uh, that tracks no. with Pinbacker's behaviour. He doesn't seem like the type to stage emergency. No, Pinbacker would just kill him. Yeah. I, I also love the touch of where Mace goes to retrieve one of the knives, one of the scalpels. Two of them are already gone. One taken by Trey, the other taken by Pinbacker. 
I do want to talk about the finale that that experience that Killian Murphy has mm. with the Wall of Flame and everything. I think that that's it's so well done and it's so well edited and it's so sort of out of left field. I mean, it's not the obvious way to do a scene like that. It's very much about presenting sort of an internal experience or this sort of like like you said, a sort of religious experience or a, a something more profound. That's really well done and. I mean, I just keep coming back over and over again to that score. That score is gorgeous throughout the whole the whole movie. That is, I mean, not just the score, but just the sound. I mean, even beyond the score, the sound design on this movie is fantastic. It's set up earlier in the film where Kappa is talking to Cassie and he says stuff about how everything about the bomb and its interaction with the sun is theoretical. We don't actually know. And the computer sort of backs him up on that and is like, yeah, guys, I have no idea what's going to happen when we get that close to the sun. But they do stress that shit's going to get wonky the closer they get. Again, we were never supposed to go there. It is beyond our ken. It is exactly like the deep ocean. Did you know there's a thin layer of, not a thin layer, but there are pools of brine under parts of the deep ocean that essentially functions as a second secret Harder to live in ocean, uh, where fish drown. So when you go down to the bottom, it's like, haha, welcome to level two. Jean, you, you're a big music guy. What did you think? I thought it was really fantastic. And just the sound design worked so well with the music. And I think John Murphy in Underworld did such a good job at picking moments where Underworld are going to be the heavy hitters here. John Murphy's going to come in and he's going to add some touches here. And they merge it with the sound design so well that you can sometimes barely tell the difference between score and sound design. And I think that is a great sign of a good sci-fi score. Because if you go back to the sci-fi score that has inspired so many other synthy ambient ones, Blade Runner. Blade Runner and Vangelis's magic score for that. In versions of it that you can find online it is literally just the audio from the movie because the sound design the voices it's it all creates a bed of sonic texture and that's what john murphy and underworld did here the bleeps and the bloops and the crunching of the ship the mechanical whirring is all there and the editing works beautifully with it to create these very interesting montages of moments, specifically with everything to do with Pin Baker. Those sounds of like grinding metal and those sounds of you know how they do those sound things of the of stars and planets and stuff, right? They take a recording of like the atmospheric pressure of say Jupiter or so. And because it is so slow, they speed it up so that it's able to be sonically heard by people. And it just sounds like grinding and stuff. It sounds like that when Pin Baker's on the scene. And again, Adagio in D minor. Oh, I love that so much. A beautiful piece of music that has been used countless times. One of my favorite tracks in, in a movie soundtrack. Like right up there with like Requiem for a Dream. It's... That, Lux Eterna, it's one of those things that sort of just jumps out. It could just be a classical music piece, you know? You could just play it as an orchestra and 
have it be unrelated to the movie itself and it would be gorgeous. Exactly. You're like, we remember stuff like all of Mozart, Bach, all of these things, Beethoven's fifth. Well, this is sort of like that. It is, it is a thing where it is just going to surpass its own birth. It's a thing that just sort of surpasses where it came from. And it's interesting where they choose to use it. Because you, you were talking yeah. about the sort of the bleeps and the bloops and the, the incorporation of sound design into the way that the, the tracks work. But the when they use Adagio and D minor, when they use some of the other orchestral, um, more traditional orchestral elements, it's all in those sort of awe-inspiring scenes to do with the sun. You know, it's a, the sun has this classicism. The sun has this this beauty. It ties back to that religious element that you've got these gorgeous string motifs. You've got this sort of languid atmosphere, but you've got piano. You've got percussion, this driving force. If you look back at depictions of angels and stuff in art, in, you know, scripture, it's always angels blowing trumpets, angels holding lyres and stringed instruments, and choirs of angels singing to God. And that is what the sun here represents. And the use of strings here as sort of a moving force for the characters is so... That's why it's so interesting, that ecclesiastical question posed by the film. It is really interesting in the way that it's done there, and it is almost as if Pinbaker has received sort of false testimony by the god. He's being given false information that the sun is sort of pushing Kappa forward, and in that moment where Kappa and the face of the sun do meet, which has been a nightmare of Kappa's for so long. There is a lack of fear. There's a lack of violence. We just see a melding and then the sun gets brighter. I do think we're wrapping up here. Is there anything either of you would like to add? I can see that Harley is starting to flag given his uh, suffering from COVID. Thank you for hanging in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's okay. Jean's a few days into it. He seems like he's gotten the foot past the worst of it, but Harley's like a, a new convert. Yeah, it's quite spicy. <coughs> so now why don't we each go around and say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie has got to be John Murphy and Underworld. I mean, it is sort of a murderous row of MVPs here. I mean, it could be Garland, it could be Boyle, it it could be the cinematographer, it could be the visual effects people. But my God, that music is just extraordinary. And I I think so much of the power and the emotion would be stunted if it it were not there. Adagio in D minor is just a gorgeous piece of work. I have it on my phone. I have ever since that, you know, that night that I I was flipping channels and I saw Canada bite the dust. And it really is just an extraordinary piece of music that, and, and there's a reason why it has expanded beyond the context of the film itself to be used in so many other things. In terms of my favorite scene or sequence, again, I've got to go with that scene. I mean, it's the scene that got me into the movie. It is the scene that I think signposts exactly what this movie is going to be. It shows its strengths. It shows its, you know, beauty and its brutality and its meaning all at once. That scene of Canada turning to face the sun as he runs out of time, that gorgeous score in the background it just has such an an epicness to it i mean there's a reason why i caught that 
um, channel surfing and, and I was there from that point on. And uh, and likewise, I suppose in, in some ways they're all sort of connect together because moving on from that, I would cast John Lithgow as Canada. But obviously you just, you'd need to probably change the name. But I think it would make a lot of common sense to have John Lithgow be Canada if he were going to be anyone else. Because again... We talked about how, how this cast has all grown in profile. But if you're talking 2007, then John Lithgow is absolutely the most famous person in the movie. He's got two Academy Award nominations. Um, he's done a whole bunch of movies. He's, he, at that time, he would have been the most known person. And he's so a successful lounge musician. <laughs> and so you can use him as that sort of figure of authority, that, you know, reasonable authority figure. Uh, the person who has that sort of power and dignity that he could pull off as as the captain. But then you also use him as the Janet Lee of this movie. You know, you mm. kill him off after 30 minutes and you're like, shit, if Lithgow's gone, this isn't going to end well. Yeah. And I think that he would, not only would he fit the character extremely well, but uh, the way that his persona and presence could be used within the movie, that's, yeah, I've got I've to slot him in there. I think it would work really well. I would have to say my MVP is Danny Boyle. He has created something truly special here. It is incredibly well done. Everything holds up, like everything. And while Garland says that there seemed to be that there was friction while making it, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Ultimately, it all still feels entirely inwardly consistent. Perhaps if we got that original ending that Lawson described earlier, it would have been a lot tighter coming up to the end. But what we got is still great. And like Garlin said, Danny Boyle has this real talent for making things visceral. And it needed to be here. It couldn't be clean sci-fi. My favorite scene or sequence has to be the space jump mm. between the ships. It's so tense. It is tragic because uh, Harvey just totally eats shit. And I do like how they actually don't tell you who it was that flew off into space, um, unless you've been paying attention. Yeah. Unless you're paying attention on who was on which side. Yeah. yeah. And they just don't say. Because I was thinking at the moment, and I said to John, what if that's Chris Evans just done? Yeah. I think that would have been brave. Like, wouldn't have that just been a shocking moment? <laughs> Um, who I would recast with character actor John Lithgow is the role of Searle. Because I cannot lose Hiroyuki Sonata. I simply can't. I refuse. And I think Searle is a great role for Lithgow. He can play the obsession, but he can also play that gentle understanding and listening that Searle has to do. And I just love the idea of him being this legitimately comforting presence on the ship. But he started to kind of lose it a little bit due to his obsession with the sun. I think Lithgow could play that all of that incredibly well, including and up to the self-sacrifice of him staying aboard the Icarus One and finally giving himself over to the sun completely. And I just, yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Uh, I think my MVP has got to be Danny Boyle because he, he has pulled out these fantastic performances from these actors. He has such an assured eye for what this movie needs to be and i feel like he has seen something in garland's writing that garland couldn't quite see yet and i think it's a fantastically put together film and sort of his vision of it has been very well put to celluloid 
<coughs> oh, sorry. So my favorite scene of sequence is when Benedict Wong has messed up the calculations or has forgotten the comms tower and starts to freak out in front of everyone and st starts to just completely unravel as a person. Because that is the moment where everything starts falling apart completely. You can track everything from that moment to the end when everyone's dead. And is it Trey's fault? Kind of? It's Kaneda's fault. He punted the decision down to too many people, frankly. Yeah, but it is such a well-acted scene and everyone is trying to calm him down and it's sweet in that sense, but you can still tell that pe some people are looking at him, especially Harvey, and he's like, that kid is going to get us all killed. And it's just such a well-put scene and very heartbreaking. And I think who I would get John Lithgow to play. Now, I've got a joke answer, and I've got two real answers. I'll do my real answers first. Can I so guess what either... one of them's going to be? Yeah. Pinbacker? Pinbacker's one of my serious yeah. suggestions. You all... because, I'll, I'll like... tell you how I knew that. You always cast him as the psychopath if you can. I think it would just be so interesting to have someone who doesn't seem like that aggressive and terrifying, and for Pinbacker to have kind of like a gentle, holy voice, I think would be interesting if it wasn't like this wrath of God, drown you in the mud preacher, if it was this real, like, gentle, angelic sort of calm and chill, and everything is fine, everything's fine, we've just got to worship the sun. I think that would be very interesting. But also Searle, I think, is a good pick, because he is that He's able to do that calming force, and I don't want to lose Hiroyuki Sonada, because he plays his character with such intelligence, but also tiredness and all of that. Uh, my joke answer is, obviously, get him to play the sun. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if it's not the sun, if it's just, like, a giant... Basically, I want him to be the baby from Teletubbies. I, I know that sounds weird. It, like... I just want his face superimposed over the sun. Yeah. Yes, we... Like he's, the, like he's the baby sun. Well, now that we have uh, done all of that, why don't we move on to do our official vote on whether or not we are a pro-sunshine podcast. I will start us off and I will say, yes, I love this movie. It's my favourite movie of 2007. I've seen it close to half a dozen times. I adore it. i got to be pro. Yeah, I would tend to agree. It's, like, really, really good sci-fi. I don't need my science fiction to be 100% accurate because, frankly, that's boring as bad shit. I want to fire a nuke into the sun and see what happens. Exactly. Like, I'm pro for the same reason. It's the same reason why I love Ad Astra. The fact that it is eschewing complex scientific perfection for really interesting human questions it's about... More, it's more thematic. Exactly. It's this mix of science and religion, which is fascinating to me. It's using a scientific narrative to explore our place in the cosmos. And, like, science fiction has to also be fiction. You gotta take it to places that mean more than just pure logical scientific accuracy. It has to be an emotional experience as well. And that's what we have here, an emotional and thematic experience. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are a... Pro Sunshine Podcast.
So, Lawson, what do we have next? Well, next week we will be talking about another movie that uh, I'm a big fan of. Maybe not as big a fan as Sunshine, but still a big fan. It is a movie that I know you guys are excited to see because you haven't seen before. It is the David Fincher serial killer film Zodiac. If you'd like to follow along at home, it is available for purchase or rental on the Amazon, Apple, YouTube, and Fetch stores. You've got to know we're going to be making jokes about Ted Cruz. you got to know. Mm, do we have to? It's the Zodiac, man. Well, Jean will be making jokes about Ted Cruz. Harley and I will be trying to avoid a libel lawsuit. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> so if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find... Lawson at X with the candy counter can they join myself at on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter. Which is the best mind, place Lawson? to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. Have you seen the Teletubbies? <laughs> because Lawson has just played a little part of that. Well, no, I, I don't know what you know what it is, is that they've got those stupid YouTube shorts now. And whenever mm. I open the YouTube app, my big dumb fingers keep accidentally, like, hitting one, <laughs> and it, like, opens it up. At any rate, have you seen Sunshine? What do you think about it? Have you seen it? Are you intending to see it? What's your favourite scene or sequence? And who would you get John Lesko to play? Is it the sun like John suggests, or is it another character? Do you think we should spend more time in the sunshine? I don't like the sun personally myself, but that's just me. I have red hair. I burn easily. Mm. You can also like, comment, rate, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that when you're commenting, for the most part, on most services, it is for the show on the whole, and not for specific episodes, but your mileage may vary depending on what service you use. Please like, comment, and subscribe. As I've said before, the machines have a fund of renewable energy sources. Wind, solar, whatnot. Solar being one of the key sources of energy they prefer. To recharge, they can either plug themselves in when they are at home, much like an electric car now, or they can sun themselves, lay out in the sun, and recharge in the manner of sunbathing, or in the process known as sunning. I'll leave it up to you whether you want to Google that or not. They also have o- they have also further explored the reaches of space, which is good. Machines can handle the rigors of space travel better than human beings ever could. They do, at times, still go mad, which is always a concern, because they're in spaceships, and they might hurtle back into the Earth. Do they have, like robot psychology officers? Oh, yes, for sure. Yeah, they would need to. As I've established before, when you gain sentience, you also gain the potential for uh, breaks with reality. Hmm. I mean, they've hit singularity, so it just makes sense. Because breaks with reality are are about perspective, and each machine now has unique perspective. It's a whole thing. I have been Harley Lewis. I have been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. (laughs) 